Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Good afternoon. Hello, Arizona, and welcome to the Logitimate Podcast with your hosts, Mike and Rochelle Holton, where we share our logitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. I'm Mike Holton, one of your hosts. I'm the managing partner at PN Law, a real estate investor, inventor, professional pyrotechnician. I do a variety of things, but most importantly, I'm a lawyer for this podcast. Uh, And this is my lovely wife, Rochelle. Rochelle, you want to tell them about yourself? Yes. My name is Rochelle Poulton. I am also an attorney. I own a law firm called Arizona Credit Law Group, and we have a bunch of different companies that we also work with to help everyone solve their financial problems, including XFIRM. And you can find us online at XFIRMlaw.com. And today we're going to be talking about owner-occupied commercial real estate in Arizona. Buying a building for your business. And how exciting that is. And we have with us today our guest, Charlotte Burr. Charlotte's great. She's one of our friends. She does a variety of things. But uh, most importantly, she's involved in commercial real estate. She can help you uh, and your business get settled in a new building all of your own. Yes, she does commercial real estate, commercial insurance for your real estate needs. And she's with AZ Insurance Team, and we'll have her on in a few minutes to talk about her awesomeness. But first, we've got the rackets. Okay, Uh, the rackets today. You know, all of the rackets we talk about are in some sense fraud-related. Sorry, the camera's bouncing all over the place because our lovely dog, Bobbles, is bobbling underneath the table and bouncing her head off of it because I can't stop petting her, not even for a second. So, uh, fraud schemes. I want to talk today specifically about a a variety of financial fraud scheme that I don't know if it's got a name yet, but there are a number of these going around, and they're getting increasingly complex, uh, and the stakes tend to be really high on this. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I recently had a client consult on something related to this, and I'm going to give you some examples here that are anonymized. I think most attorneys get calls pretty regularly from people who have gotten caught up in something of this sort. The idea is this. One person or a group of people set up a scheme where they will steal credit card or bank account information, and then they need to extract the money from those accounts or credit cards without them being caught. But it's inevitable that whoever uses a fake credit card is very likely to get caught, especially if they take a lot of money off of it. And certainly, if you use bank account information to transfer money out of somebody else's account without authorization, uh, you're going to be caught because there's a, a complete electronic trail for where that money went. So people have come up with schemes that will allow them to set someone else up to take the fall for the fraud while they actually extract the money from the scheme. Uh, And then you're left holding the bag. And by holding the bag, I mean getting prosecuted for multiple felonies and potentially going to prison. It's real bad. And the way they do this is by setting up a scheme that creates its own paper trail that incriminates you. The paper trail incriminates their patsy. So they will steal some account information or credit card data, and then they'll find somebody who they can manipulate into participating in a business transaction of some type. And they're going to tell you that they need to borrow money for a business or that they have an opportunity for you to participate in a business investment or something along those lines and spin some story about how they need you to buy stuff with your credit card or with your bank account and then send it to other people where it's going to be resold or that those people are their customers or something like that. And you're fronting the money for these transactions. And that in and of itself may not sound completely fishy, although it's not going to look completely legitimate either, but it may not sound totally fishy. The fishy part is how you get paid back for that loan. Somehow, you're going to get paid back from somebody else, not the person who roped you into this, not the person you've been dealing with, but some other person who you haven't talked to, and you're going to get paid back out of their checking account by wire transfer, for example or by you running a credit card payment to yourself through Square or something like that using this other person's credit card. This is going to be something that you've never ended up doing before. It's, it's not a usual transaction, and this should send up all kinds of red flags. The reality is that they've already extracted the money from this scheme. When you bought products and shipped them somewhere, or when you bought gift cards and gave them to somebody, that's their cash out at your expense. 
you getting paid back, you're getting paid back with the actual fraud money from whoever their real victim is, uh, from a compromised bank account, from a stolen credit card, something like that. And they are essentially convincing you to do the fraud for them. You are the person who is committing the illegal transaction using a stolen credit card, using stolen banking information, whatever it is. Uh, and so when an investigation occurs, after somebody discovers that there's a bunch of money missing out of their account or their credit card is maxed for no reason, when they report that to their bank and the police, who are they going to find? They look through this transaction data and you're the recipient. You're the one who got that money. And then they look at your account information and sure enough, you spent it. You bought a whole bunch of stuff with that person's money. And that is, in fact, the reality. At the end of the day, you bought a bunch of stuff with stolen money. And there's no way out of that. It's, it is a dirty, messy situation for you. And there will be nothing that points directly to the people who roped you into it. They may be using fake names. They may be using burner phones. There may be, yeah, there may be no way to ever find these people. So how do you avoid this? Uh, well, first of all, don't participate in business transactions that you don't understand pretty darn well. If you don't see how the whole big picture is satisfied by all the details within it, and you understand how each of the participants is making money, how you make money, how everyone got together to do this deal, if you don't have those basics in your head, don't do the deal. Look, even fairly complicated business transactions are not that complicated. Even some pretty sophisticated, advanced business models can be understood if you spend a couple hours. And I mean a couple hours, really sitting down and studying how this is put together. Maybe draw it out on a piece of paper with the people and the flow of the money and the products. See who's getting a cut of what and how. If it doesn't make sense, if you can't see why they're doing it the way they're doing it and what the result's going to be, don't participate in that transaction. You may be missing out on an opportunity, but you don't know that. If you don't understand the transaction pretty thoroughly, you have no way of knowing that you're actually going to come out ahead at the end. You certainly shouldn't be trusting the other people involved. They're your counterparties. Use your head here. Don't get wrapped into some kind of promise on something that you don't really understand uh, because that's how they get you. The, the whole point is for them to create the appearance of a complicated, legitimate scheme, something that you think is really smart, but it's just a little over your head. No, it isn't. It's dumb and you're the patsy. You're getting set up. <laughs> don't let yourself get set up like that. Now, next step to avoid getting set up, create your own paper trail. You may have noticed as I explained this scheme, the perpetrators are creating a paper trail to defend themselves. And in fact, it is an accurate one at your expense. They've convinced you to commit a crime without even realizing it. You got to create your own paper trail. And this applies to any situation because you don't really know whether you might be wrapped up in some kind of a scam or, or illegitimate situation at any point in time, no matter how legitimate you think your dealings are, uh, you could be involved in something you don't really understand. So always document your business activities. If you're giving money to somebody, selling products to somebody, engaging in any kind of a business transaction, send emails, keep text messages, write it down. When you have a phone call with somebody or uh, a conversation in person, send some follow-up emails. This doesn't have to be super formalized. Um, and in fact, you can make it intentionally informal so it doesn't raise red flags for your counterparties. But the bottom line is every key element of your involvement in a business deal should be written down and communicated with the other parties. That way, if you need to prove later what information you had on a certain date, uh, what led you to make a certain decision, any of those things, if you need to prove that in court to the police to defend yourself, you can. Just do it. Now, finally, if you start receiving any kind of threats from people that you're involved in some kind of a transaction with, like that they're going to beat you up, or you'll be sorry if you mess with us, or we're going to call the police on you, or anything like that, cut and run. What the hell are you doing? That's not how people do business. That doesn't make any sense. That is, however, what fraudsters do to coerce their marks into continuing to participate in their schemes. It is a classic. They'll frighten you into thinking that you're the one who's in the wrong and that they're going to enforce something or come down on you or make you sorry. 
It's all bullshit. It's a load of crap. And it's intended to control you emotionally. Don't let yourself get wrapped up in that. And don't participate in business deals with people who behave that way. It's fraudulent behavior. If your spidey sense is tingling, if you get the heebie-jeebies, cut and run and get a lawyer. In many, many instances, when I get phone calls from people who have been involved in something like this, um, they don't know that they have been set up in a scam until they go through it with me and I get the facts out of them and say, look, uh, this is what's going on. Uh, you're being set up to take the fall here for somebody else's fraud. And, and hopefully they've called me before they've gotten to that point, but sometimes they have not. And it's really important to lawyer up if you get yourself into that situation. Discontinue your involvement with these people and lawyer up immediately so you can get a clear, neutral assessment of the whole situation because this can get really serious really fast. And by that, I mean you can put yourself in a position where you're being prosecuted for felonies that you had no idea you were committing. Um, and when I say no idea you're committing, I mean you committed them. You, you just didn't know it. That's a very difficult position to be in and not one uh, that you want to take lightly. So lawyer up, abide by your spidey sense and your heebie-jeebies. That is our rackets for today. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty heavy topic because yes. it's really serious. Key takeaways, if you don't understand the financial transaction, call a lawyer. If you feel like you're being threatened, call a lawyer. If you don't really understand what's going on and you just want a, a legal opinion, call a lawyer. A lot of consultations are free. Those are the easiest ways to avoid being part of a scam. <laughs> Confirm with a third party like a lawyer. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> All right. The LBL moment yes. for today. It's time for LBL, right? Yes. Okay. So we'll do this part pretty quickly. There's been a lot of talk about uh, the, election. The, the hypothetical possibility that the election could be delayed in November or that there might not be an election. Uh, first and foremost, we think that's incredibly unlikely. For a huge slew of reasons, it, it's extremely unlikely that the election will not occur as scheduled. Uh, it has never happened in, in the history of our country. Uh, even when we've been at war, even during the Civil War, we have held our elections on time. But what if we didn't? What if there were no election? What happens? There's a process. There is a process. Although it's a little unclear in a few aspects, there are several important things that are definitely clear. And one of those is that the current president is no longer the president at the end of this term. Uh, this isn't a situation where the absence of an election results in the current president continuing for another four years. No, in, the term ends. Presidents are elected for four-year terms, and they're done at the end of those four years unless they get re-elected. So in the absence of a re-election, the presidency does not continue beyond the turnover date. Uh, and in fact, it's noon on January 20th. That's when the, the current term ends. So what becomes of the office of the president after noon on January 20th of 2021? Well, all right. If there's no election, then... Uh, the typical route of succession would go to the Speaker of the House, but there wouldn't be one because there wouldn't have been a federal election. So there wouldn't be a House. So then the Senate uh, would get to appoint whoever they want to be the president of the Senate at that time, since that office can change whenever they want. And that's who would get to do it. So we would be left with whichever senators do not have their terms expire uh, in the absence of this election. So we would have a partial Senate. That partial Senate would be strongly Democratic majority. There is a possibility that replacement senators for the missing seats could be appointed by the governors of those states. Those governors are overwhelmingly Democratic. So either way, whether senators are replaced by appointment or not, the result would be a Democratic majority Senate appointing their own president of the Senate, who then gets to take the office of the president. So end result, in the absence of an election in November, the Democratic senators who remain would get to appoint the president. Thus, temporarily, temporarily, thus, it seems exceedingly unlikely that there will not be an election in November. <laughs> so it's going to happen. It's going to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. That's law. Uh, business. Airbnb. Oh, IPO. LMNOP. IPO. LMNOP. Airbnb IPO. So earlier in the pandemic, Airbnb just got annihilated. Their business tanked like 70% loss of bookings in 
March or April, something like May that. May and June. Yeah, just <laughs> down the tubes. It was headed for total disaster. So many of their property owners had to cut and run. They lost their portfolios of rental properties. Uh, it's just been an apocalypse. Well, it's already starting to turn around. Uh, already. And in fact, Airbnb's recovery is exceeding the recoveries of other travel-related businesses like hotels and resorts. People seem to be preferring Airbnbs now that they are starting to travel again. And as a result, um, Airbnb is filing for an IPO. Um, Not sure exactly when that's going to occur, but their business is recovering fast enough that they think they're in a good position to go ahead and go public. Of course, you could be cynical and look at that and say, well, really, they're doing terribly and they need the money. So they're doing it as an emergency fundraising measure. But I don't know if that's fair. Their actual statistics do indicate recovery. So the point of bringing this up is the pandemic has resulted in completely tumultuous market conditions in all different businesses across the board. And the changes are occurring so rapidly and so drastically that it's hard for anybody to keep up with it. Even large, successful, agile businesses like Airbnb are having a really hard time dealing with this stuff. So as a small business owner, you're not alone in struggling with rapidly changing extreme market swings. We all have to deal with it. Make the best of it. See where your opportunities lie. See how you can recover faster, sooner, more than your competition. See how you can pivot. Take the opportunities where you get them. That's what I would say. Nice. And life. Life. It's fire season. It's freaking hot. And we're breaking all the wrong records. All the wrong records. <laughs> we should be getting rain by now. The fires should be out. It's not happening. It's not. We got more and more hot. fires. We got heat like crazy. It's so, currently 109. Yeah. Which is nuts. better than 115. It was like 112 yesterday evening. There, I've lost count of the wildfires that are threatening our cabin. We're just not even paying attention anymore at this point. No. Um, it's nuts. Yeah, I don't know what the point of us saying that is, except it's hot, uh, it's hot and we want it to be Email colder. us your how <laughs> you are staying cool in this crazy heat. You can email That's us right. at legitimate at xfirmlaw.com. All right. Moving on. Moving on. Moving so, to our main segment here. With Charlotte Burr. We're so yeah. excited to have Charlotte on our podcast. She is amazing. She's an insurance agent. And Charlotte, why don't you tell us about you? Hi. Um, like I said, my name is Charlotte Burr. I own AZ Insurance Team. And me, a couple of things that make me unique is I am fifth generation from Arizona. My great, great, great grandma, I think, came over in covered wagons. So that is wow. to Thatcher. So that is very different. Um, fourth generation from Mesa. And love to travel and can't travel right now. So honestly, life is boring. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have one cat right here, another cat right there and a dog. Over, that's my life right now. Just like eating and like family guy on, you know, Netflix or Hulu and animals. And that's my life right now. So it is what it is. It's temporary. Yep, it's temporary. It might be a year, but it's still <laughs> temporary. Still temporary. Yeah. Just so, tell us a little about your business. Why don't you introduce the audience to what you do? Sure. So I am an insurance broker. Um, a lot of people don't know what insurance broker means. So say I'm doing a quote for John Smith. So I would get John Smith's information, car info, and I would um, plug it in one system and then it shoots it out to about 20 different insurance carriers and they spit the cost back at me. And then whatever carrier comes up least expensive with good coverages that has a good reputation, that is the carrier uh, whose website I would go into uh, play with the numbers a little bit, and then send the client a quote. Um, me doing that work doesn't cost anything. Um, that is just what I do. So I get paid by the insurance companies if that policy ends up coming through, but I'm able to shop um, many different insurance companies in order to get people the best rates. And in Arizona, we're not allowed to charge broker fees, whereas in other states they can. So again, my services cost nothing. Yeah. Excellent. And, they and what kind of insurance do you cover? 
uh, auto, home, life, commercial, everything but health. I hate health insurance. I don't even do my own health insurance. I hate it. Um, but I love the other stuff. Yeah. We also, we've developed a niche dealing with real estate investors. So if, uh, you know, there's guys or girls that are doing fix and flips, buy and holds, residential, commercial, ground up construction, raw land, we can insure all of those. So we've, we've had a lot of success doing those. Mm-hmm. Pretty sweet. Yeah. I like so it. Pretty good fit for our topic today owner occupied mm-hmm. commercial real estate. So yeah. buying a building for your own business, uh, mm-hmm. which you just recently did. I just did it. Like the worst time possible. I just did it when I have two empty offices right now. <laughs> <laughs> Always fun. Yep. Oh. What kind of building did you get? Tell us about it. It's so the complex it's in Every building has two units on it that back up to each other. So it's kind of like a bunch of of commercial duplexes all in the same complex. And I don't know if it's like snobby of me, but I wanted to not have a unit number. I feel like when you don't have a unit number, you're like coming up in the world. So I, I don't have an actual address. I don't have a unit number, which I love. It's a weird thing for me. I was the same way when we bought our house. I don't know why. No unit numbers. So yeah, we just closed escrow uh, May 4th and it's about 1,500 square feet and um, love it. Floor plan's great, but we are renovating the crap out of it um, because it's older and it's kind of dingy. So, um, and what's, what is nice about what's going on right now is we have no sense of urgency to get it done really quickly. So we can really take our time renovating it to make it exactly what we want it to, to look like. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Very nice. So uh, Mike, why don't you tell them about your building? Yeah. So I've got a building. Uh, our law firm is located in it and I, I use the rest of it. Uh, our firm only takes up about 1600 square feet. And then the rest of the building is, unfinished space. I partly finished a little bit of it as uh, an electronics and scientific equipment lab that I use for my product development stuff. Yeah. So I spend some time in there and then the rest of the building, about another 4,000 square feet is unfinished storage uh, and metal shop area. So I use it as a, a fabrication shop and store tools and materials and equipment there. So I filled the thing up. Uh, it's certainly one of those things where when I bought it, I didn't think there's any way I could fill 5,800 square feet total. Uh, but sure enough, it's full. And I guess that's a lesson to learn. Even if you think you can't possibly use the space, you'll use the space. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you should buy more necessarily, but it does mean you can't count on having empty space and keeping it that way forever. <laughs> Stuff just finds its way in. You end up with piles. <laughs> Sure. I'm sure that that also helps your marriage. So your house isn't full of projects. Well, you would hope. (laughs) He has his moments. (laughs) Yeah. Somehow here at my home desk, I still have a soldering station right next to my telephone. So (laughs) whatever. At least it's not the kitchen. Yeah, I can use all true. of the kitchen appliances now. That's I'm very true. happy about that. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, like your building, Charlotte, mine is pretty old. Uh, it was built at a variety of times from the 40s through roughly the 70s, I think was mm-hmm. the last time that something was added to it. It was gross. Yeah, it was pretty gross when I got it. Um, you mentioned you're doing a whole bunch of work. We did a whole bunch of work on ours, stripped out the entire inside, built our offices in it. Um, it's been quite a project. I think the key thing to take away from this little conversation is if you're looking at commercial space and you find something old, you have to have a vision for it. Yeah. And if you can't see the end product, you shouldn't buy it. Yeah. If you don't see the potential, you definitely shouldn't buy it because commercial real estate is so much different than residential. Commercial is a long-term investment, whereas residential is kind of like you can live in it for a year and still recover. Mm -hmm. Commercial is not the same. So the path to owning commercial real estate, I think the first key is uh, we call it owner occupied, but we don't mean the owner should actually own the building. <laughs> That's step one. Mike, you want to talk more about that? Yeah. Owner occupied. We call it an owner occupied property in commercial real estate. If the people who control the business that's located there are the people who control the business that owns the property. 
And that's a, a weird and complicated way of saying it, but that's because you should have it set up in that weird and complicated way. You need to have an LLC or another independent business entity that owns the property. And that really should not be your tenant business. If you happen to own the tenant business and you also own the business that owns the property, that's great. And it's owner-occupied, but not literally owner-occupied. If you've got a restaurant, that restaurant should not own its building. If you've got a law firm, that law firm should not own its building. You create separate LLCs. And if you're smart, you create separate LLCs for every property you own and every Mm -hmm. business activity that you do. Mm -hmm. These things provide isolation of liability between your activities. There are a lot of great reasons to not have real property, business property, owned by the business that occupies it. And I could go on for an hour about the reasons why that limitation of liability is appropriate. But suffice to say, uh, the attorney you consult with when you retain an attorney to consult with you about your business structures, will tell you that this is how you should do it. Limited liability company. Or corporation or something else. in the name. Yeah. (laughs) LLC is almost certainly going to be the best way to go in Arizona and probably most other places, but there might be circumstances where you'd end up with a different entity. Bottom line is you need your own entity to own that property. So no genuinely owner-occupied commercial buildings. Valuation. Let's talk about valuation of commercial real estate, cap rates, and highest and best use. So exciting. Charlotte, when you bought your property, how did Mm -hmm. you go about figuring out what it was worth? So the same with residential. They do comps um, to say, you know, hey, you're getting a good deal. Hey, it's overpriced. Let's not go with this one. They do comparisons um, with like properties in the area. And um, one thing that really threw me is when they do a commercial appraisal, it's not to figure out what the building is worth. It's to justify the loan amount. We, so like we got our appraisal and it appraised for exactly what our loan amount is, even though our realtor is saying, hey, this is a screaming deal. We're like, no, it's not. It appraised for exactly what we're buying it for. And she's like, no, it works this way. It's just to, um, uh, what's the, just to make the loan amount make sense. Yes. So, so weird. <laughs> weird. It's not an actual valuation the way you see in residential where if appraisal comes in, they're like, okay, your house is worth, you know, 365000 and, you know, it's $200 a square foot. In commercial, it's like, how much is your loan? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> exactly. And actually, you know, residential did that at times. Yes. There, we've been through phases in the residential market where that was a pretty common practice that you would agree on a price for a property, get under contract, and then the appraiser knows the loan amount when they go to appraise it, and they just appraise it for whatever the loan amount is without really paying a whole lot of attention to the property. And that was done away with because of the issues with uh, unrealistic valuations in inflated residential markets. But those same considerations are less of a problem in commercial for a variety of reasons. And I think this actually gets to the heart of one of the key differences between residential and commercial real estate. And that is that in residential real estate, home buyers have a lot of protections. You have a lot of legal protections acting in your favor protections against unscrupulous practices by sellers, unscrupulous practices by lenders, unscrupulous practices by agents. Everyone involved in the process has tons of regulations that prevent them from being unscrupulous towards you. And you've got all kinds of benefits of the doubt and opportunities to correct things and ways to get out of stuff and all of that stuff, because you're just a regular person buying a house. And how can you be expected to know all of these pitfalls and do all your due diligence that carefully? Well, guess what? As soon as you go buy a commercial building, nobody gives a crap about you. You don't have any protections. None. (laughs) Doesn't matter if you've never even owned real estate before and you rent an apartment. If you're going to buy the very first property you've ever bought and it's a commercial building, you are held to exactly the same standard as a billionaire real estate developer. Exactly the same standard. And if you are buying it from a billionaire real estate developer, everyone will operate on the understanding that you 
and that guy have the same level of understanding, the same bargaining power, the same opportunities in that transaction. And that means that caveat emptor absolutely applies. <laughs> you are buying whatever the heck you're buying. And if it turns out that it wasn't a good deal and you didn't know what was going on with that property and you made a terrible mistake, that's on you. And <laughs> education, education and ask a bazillion questions is yes. so important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that really, the appraisal issue is one aspect of that. You know, you're getting that appraisal because your lender requires it. That's mm-hmm. why that appraisal is occurring. And all the bank cares about is that a reasonably qualified uh, appraiser looked it over briefly and said, yeah, this makes some sense. They, Yeah, that's fine. And that's all they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, you know, that roof's going to cave in or the, you know, slab is completely messed up. None of that. Nope. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll fix that. Fine. They'll fix it. It's yeah. totally cool. <laughs> totally fine. Let's talk about the phase one environmental. Yeah. Did you do a phase one environmental? So this is how I knew that the first realtor we were working with, we shouldn't have been working with. So we started, <laughs> we started out with a with a guy who claimed to be a commercial realtor and I don't know if we were his first transaction or whatever, but he said, we asked him because I brought it up because Mike told me, make sure you get a phase one. So <laughs> I, him and I said, if you, if, if you were buying this building, would you do a phase one environmental? And he said, nah, I wouldn't worry about it, but you are required to get a phase one environmental if you're buying commercial real estate. So he, that's why we fired him. Um, so <laughs> I, my long drawn out answer is yes, we did, but that's what came of that topic. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My introduction to a phase one environmental assessment actually was when we bought this building. Um, I hadn't been involved in commercial real estate very much prior to that. And mm-hmm. fortunately I was working with some very good people. And uh, fortunately I did my own research also on what the appropriate due diligence is. You know, when you're buying a house, you make an offer, they accept it, you go under contract, and then you've got an inspection period, which often is 10 days. Sometimes you extend it to 15 or 20, depends on the schedule, but you're going to have a couple weeks to inspect the property. And typically what people do is they hire a home inspector to go take a look at it. And very often that's it. So you've got some guy who maybe has some decent construction experience and passed a fairly easy state test. Uh, and charges you a few hundred bucks to go look around the place and give you a report. And very often, um, they miss important things. Uh, Very often, they pick up on things that are not very important and make a big deal out of them. Uh, Very often, the result of that is not all that thorough or that informative. Um, That's why it's important to get a really good home inspector who does good inspections and can really talk you through it. But bottom line is, that's most of the due diligence that people do when buying a house. Well, when you're buying a commercial property, it is much more involved than that because you don't have those protections that you've got as a consumer. So you really do have to discover every single thing that you possibly could care about that has anything to do with that property, and it's on you to sort it out. So there are no home inspectors for commercial properties. You're going to have to find contractors uh, who you plan to work with on renovations to come in and give you an assessment. You'll probably have to pay them for that. Then you got to deal with all the other stuff. Things like hidden hazardous materials on the property. What if there was a leaking diesel fuel tank buried underneath this building 50 years ago that used to power their old boiler? And what if their old boiler had asbestos insulated piping that's still hanging from the ceiling uh, hidden up there? And what if the floor tiles have asbestos under them and everything is painted with lead paint? All right. <laughs> this happens. <laughs> not only is this not hypothetical, it's not even uncommon. All of these things go together on the same properties. If you've got one, you may well have all of them. <laughs> so, and structural problems. All of these things go together. So, you got to find these consultants to come in and look at it. But what about those hazardous materials, the buried tanks? Uh, you know, if some business was there 50 years ago that did chrome plating, oh boy, uh, you can never own something that used to be a chrome plating shop 
They're all toxic waste sites, literally. So you have to figure that out for yourself. And it's very important that you do. Because if you don't, and you end up buying that property, and it turns out that there was a leaking buried tank or toxic material contamination, or it's radioactive for some reason, the EPA will make you pay to clean it up. Ka-ching. Ka-ching. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. It'll cost so much more than the property is worth. It'll cost so much more than, than all of the money you've got. It's an instant financial death sentence if you accidentally buy a toxic waste dump. <laughs> so do the phase one so, environmental. <laughs> do a phase one environmental assessment. Because if you do, you have special protection, limited, narrow protection, but special protection from liability for cleanup of that waste. What you have to do is you pay an expert, certified person to come in, they inspect the property, they look over all the records of its historical use, they take some samples from surfaces, and they give you either a clean bill of health, or they say, there could be a problem here. And if they give you the clean bill of health, then you can buy that property, and if it turns out they were wrong, and there were certain types of hazards, most of the common ones, uh, and there's a huge cleanup bill, then Superfund pays for it instead of you. And that's great. Uh, you're still never going to be able to sell the property for anything. You're out your money. But at least you're not on the hook for tens millions. or hundreds of millions of dollars to clean up <laughs> I something know. that you it's can't possibly afford. So, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so do the phase one. If you end up getting a dirty bill of health on the phase one, you're going to go to a phase two. But in reality, you're going to cancel the contract because if there's any question about it, it isn't worth dealing with. You're going to move on and find a different property. So Solid. there you go. That's that's phase one. You better do it. <laughs> and then, of course, zoning, use permits, and certificates of occupancy are your next round of hurdles for owning commercial real estate. Indeed. Did you have any of those issues, Charlotte? <sighs> Certificate of occupancy and what else? Zoning. Zoning and use permits. Probably not. Uh, for no. You know, I don't think we did, but it was such a, a one after another, after another, after another. We may have. I don't know. <laughs> You're fortunate, and so am I in, in my business, that uh, the office uses are really low impact and aren't really regulated. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, you can put an office in pretty much any commercial building. In fact, I don't think there are any zoning types don't quote me on this. It's not legal advice, but I don't think there are any zoning types for a commercial where you can't do an office. Yeah. Um, not sure about that, but I think not. But anyways, if your business is something else like auto repair, man, auto repair has got all kinds of issues. Um, mm -hmm. There, you've got zoning problems, certainly. Yeah. Because you can only do that in certain zoning. So you got to make sure that the property... Storage units are another weird yes, one. Yes, uh, storage units, uh, metal fabrication, anything that's a noisy, dirty, smelly, heavy use. Uh, or that has a fire risk or hazmat involved, uh, all of those things, you've got zoning restrictions. Restaurants, have yeah, capacity, restaurants, parking. Anything with a lot of traffic. A lot meaning any traffic. <laughs> a restaurant is going to have cars parked and people leaving at all hours. Yeah. I mean, even retail, you got to be careful about yeah. it. You can't just do retail everywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Um, so you got to know exactly what business you're going to be doing there and make sure that that property is zoned for it. And then if it's something that requires a use permit and in the city of Phoenix, that's like half of everything, uh, <laughs> then you better make sure you're going to be able to get that use permit for that specific location before you do the deal. Because if you can't, nobody cares. You will have bought a property you cannot use for your business and nobody yeah. cares. You just, you're going to have to sell it or rent it to somebody else, but you're not going to be able to move into it and do your business there. Oh, and some places have overlays. So like, yeah. even though it's zoned for it, there's an overlay that's saying you can't do it. Yep. So <laughs> just all hilarious. Yeah. Tons of pitfalls. Commercial yeah. is nothing like residential. Yeah. So next topic on our list here, and, and Charlotte, just so you know, we have an agenda that we're looking at, and we kept you completely in the dark. Yep. You, you didn't get a copy of it. No. So. <laughs> we did it like five minutes before we went on the air. So. Okay. <laughs> Premises liability insurance. I'm sure you can talk this a lot about you. that. <laughs> Tell us about liability yeah. insurance for owners of uh, commercial property. 
Yeah, if you are the, you know, the owner-occupant, like they're referring to, where you're not really owner-occupant, but it's the same flesh and... I I, I, di- I distinguish the two between flesh and blood ownership and on-paper ownership. There you go. <laughs> same flesh and blood ownership for occupancy and ownership. There's a few things you need to do to your general liability policy, and not every company um, allows this. So you need to make sure that your policy is cool with this, or else you have to get two separate policies. So what we did, so we have a general liability policy with CNA, huge commercial insurance company. Mm -hmm. And what we were able to do with them, so we have it under our operations, which is AZ Insurance Team. They are the named insured. That's the name that comes, you know, when we got our packet in the mail, AZ Insurance Team. But what we were able to do is I was able to add the entity that bought our building. I was able to add them as, as an additional named insured on the policy, not an additional interest, not an additional insured, an additional named insured. That way, I could add on building coverage on to my AZ insurance team policy so I didn't have to have two different policies. And the reason that's okay is we have the same flesh and blood ownership between the two of them. And it's not just the people. It's also the percentages that I own in the business and my boyfriend owns in the business. So I'm 50% owner. He's 50% owner in both. So you have to have a lot of common ownership congruencies is that a word i don't know yeah everything everything has to be mirror image of each other and the entity that bought the building can't have any other operations it has to just be real estate holding nothing else um So that is very, very, very important to make sure you do that correctly. If not, you have to get a separate policy for, like, here's your operations, general liability policy. You have to get a separate policy for the building coverage, So, which is usually more expensive. And I feel redundant. That's why if you can get them to work together, it's better for 19 different reasons. And then premises liability... So your general liability policy is not just premises liability. It covers a whole slew of different things. Um, One of those things is advertising and personal injury and advertising liability. So that would be, so say the entity that owns my building was having other operations. Say that that it's for, for, to Southern. So say 442 Southern owns a restaurant and that restaurant got sued because we were bad mouthing another restaurant. The personal um, and advertising injury would pay out for those lawsuits and attorney's fees and all that jazz. And then it also will cover products and completed operations. So say not a restaurant. So let's say manufacturing. So say you're a manufacturing um, business and you didn't have two separate entities, just the one, you could lose not only if you get sued for something that you manufactured and it was defective or lead paint, China, whatever. Um, You could lose not only the operation assets and can be trained of its future future earnings, but then you would also lose your building. Um, that's again why you want to have two separate entities. So yeah, the premises liability is wonderful for any customers coming in, but it's all the other stuff that goes into it is the reason why you have to you just have to have one. It's it's one of the one of those things, what's the term that I came up with? You're stepping over dollars to grab pennies. Yeah. You don't have one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. Your point about uh, manufacturing liability resulting in losing the building, um, very good point. That is one of the prime examples. Uh, Liability that arises out of your core business activity is Mm -hmm. much more likely to occur and much more likely to be severe than liability associated with the actual ownership of the property. Conversely, liability that's associated with the ownership of the property. And that's things like somebody tripping and falling on uh, something that's pointier than it should be um, outside. You know, that, that would be an example of premises liability. That's where liability goes to the building owner primarily rather than the tenant. And that depends on a lot of details, but, but often it'll go to the building owner. 
And mm-hmm. you don't want that to jeopardize your business operation either, because the mm-hmm. business itself may be just as valuable or more valuable than the building it's in. So mm-hmm. that isolation works both ways. You're isolating the, the property itself from liabilities of the business operation that's in it, and you're isolating the business operation from liabilities associated with the premises. And we actually, I forget who recommended us to do this or it was required, but we actually set up a lease between AZ Insurance Team and the building LLC. Um, And that's just another layer of asset protection um, because if one gets sued and they try and sue both, we can say, nah, look at the lease. AZ Insurance Team is not responsible for this. Absolutely. Uh, And that's another thing. How do you deal with the finances of a single property entity for a commercial building that your business occupies? You know, this is something that a lot of people struggle with or fail to struggle with. They just do something and don't even consider that maybe there is a a proper way of setting this up. But what you just described, Charlotte, is the proper way of setting this up. You need to establish a formal lease sign it. You may be the person signing both signatures, but you're going to sign both separate signatures, once on behalf of the landlord company, once on behalf of the tenant company, to establish the lease terms, including payment, set up mm-hmm. separate banking, and pay mm-hmm. your rent. <laughs> it actually has to be a business. <laughs> yes. And then pay your insurance, your taxes, your maintenance, everything else out of the account for the landlord entity. It is a separate business. The overhead on dealing with that is not that extreme. It's worth doing. It's That's not the hard part of, of maintaining a commercial property. <laughs> yeah. But those formalities matter. Um, it makes it easier for your own internal accounting. It's easier for tax accounting. And then if an incident does occur where you end up having to prove the legitimacy of these business relationships and the rigidness of them, uh, you've got it fully documented. The other reason to do it is... When you go to sell this property, you're going to have to justify its price. And one of the very best ways to justify the price for a commercial property is by showing its rent rolls. Mm. If you have a property that has tenants that have been there for a while, the rent that those tenants pay effectively establishes the market value of that property because you apply what's called a cap rate, a capitalization rate, to the rent income that the property produces just take the annual rent, divide by 8% or 10%, whatever the appropriate cap rate is for that type of real estate in the current market. And bingo, you've got a current market value for that property. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. Uh, And pretty accurate. So if you set your own rent at market rates, which realtors can help you determine what an appropriate rent rate is for that kind of property, uh, and you can also look around and see what else is available, what you'd be able to lease, if you're paying yourself that rent, and it's well-proven, then when you go to sell that property, that's a strong indicator of its value. Useful record to have. It's a cat tail. (laughs) (laughs) I have a dog just below camera level here. Just a lot lot of dog activity here. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) So let's talk about the financing part. The part of actually buying a building. Charlie, yeah, we, were talking, we were talking earlier this week about how everything costs twelve hundred bucks and occasionally five grand. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so. Say you've bought and sold three houses uh, over the years. It's still a completely different world doing commercial financing. I mean, it's like speaking English to speaking Mandarin. I mean, it's just totally different. So, yeah. I just pulled up one of the invoices we had from the Alta. I can't even tell you what Alta stands for. Oh, I guess it's the land surveying. Yep. Yeah, $1,700. I am very lucky that the guy that did my inspection, he is a real uh, residential real estate inspector, but he owns his own commercial stuff. And he had, he has lots of years of construction. So I had him do my inspection and he was nice enough to only charge me a hundred dollars because he's a friend of mine. (laughs) I know it's nice to have friends that, yeah, it's just good. Yeah. I'm looking at the breakdown and yeah, everything is a grand to two grand, every single thing. And there's not three things like there is when you're buying a house, there's nine things like, or 12 things. It's just so freaking expensive. 
like whatever you think you're going to spend leading up to the close and bringing to the table, no, multiply it by like three or four. And you don't do, it's hard to find a 10% down payment, uh, uh, you know, no five or, or 3% down payment like it is with um, residential. We had to do a 25% down payment in addition to all the bazillion dollars in closing costs. Yeah. Yep. It was. There's, there's no way to know going in how much you're going to have to spend on all that ancillary stuff because it just develops over the course of the due diligence period as you lead up to closing. You, you just wake up one day, you're like, oh, yeah, uh, you need a structural engineering consult on this. Like, Great. I right. pay five grand for a structural engineer to tell me the place sucks. <laughs> Did that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and then you walk away from the building. Yeah. And yeah. Start over again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's one thing, one thing that really surprised us. So I, I have, I brought up on my laptop um, some of the breakdowns <laughs> for. Let's see. So this one is. So we got an interest rate at four point eight five, whereas at that time residential was at about, I don't know, three and a half. It's right before it took a nosedive, of course. So it was at about three and a half. So commercial is definitely, um, the interest rate is much more expensive. But what we did is a 10 over 20 year. You know, it's funny. There's an episode of The Office where Michael Scott is buying his condo. The realtor said 10 over 20 years. And I asked my residential mortgage friends, is that a real thing? And they said, no, that's not a real thing. Oh, no, it is for commercial. It is for oh. commercial. And that's what we did. So what it means is you are, I hope I explained this correctly. So they are figuring out your, they're figuring out how much you owe and they're, they're making it for a 20 year, but they're squishing it into 10 years. And pretty much if you don't pay everything on the loan at the end of 10 years, you owe everything else that's left. So what we're planning on doing is just paying an extra X amount of, of money every single month to make sure that it's paid off in the 10 years and not go to the 20. And see, I don't even, I, I, I barely understand it. And I just went through it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably explaining it, and I just did it like two months ago. But that's it. So, yeah, (sighs) Uh, yeah. And I think this gets back to one of the earlier things that I said. There are no protections of any kind, and everyone assumes that you are just as competent in commercial real estate as a billionaire real estate investor. There are (laughs) very complicated financial arrangements that are available uh, Mm -hmm. because there aren't any limits. Banks can just decide what they're willing to do. There, there is no framework that's established that controls what they're allowed to offer, what they're not allowed to offer, what kind of weird arrangements you're allowed to come up with, none of that. And because those arrangements, all kinds of weird arrangements, are sometimes advantageous for somebody, mm-hmm. you can do it. If you can come up with it and if you can convince a banker that it's a good idea, then you can do it. And conversely, if the banker can come up with it and sell you on it, then they're allowed to. And there's all kinds of weird stuff that goes on. In commercial. One of the guys one of the guys we talked to was a pretty much you told him, this is what I'm looking at. Here's what I'm willing to do for the down payment. Here's what the credit looks like. You told him all you tell him all this stuff. And then he goes and talks to all these different banks. And mm-hmm. once you find the bank, then the bank peons have to go and talk to like the vice presidents to see, okay, cool. Does this make sense? If not, let's tweak it a little bit. So it's so not uniform. Yeah. There's Every nothing deal is unique. Huh? Yeah. Every deal is unique. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 They reinvent the wheel every freaking time. And what's uniform at one lender, what they do for a routine transaction there may be very different than what another lender does routinely, both in terms of the, the terms that they're offering and also their process for engaging you and, and getting the loan done. It's not yeah. standardized. Don't worry. We'll have a whole legitimate on commercial lending. 
<laughs> It'll be fun and complicated for sure. Adulting level 500. <laughs> wanted to mention one thing real quick on commercial property uh, lending, and that is the idea of equity stripping. We talked about using a single property entity, separate entity from your business to own the property and that that's important for liability protection. Another thing to consider for liability protection is the practice of equity stripping your property. And that means not parking your money in the real estate. Borrow as much against that property as you can, keep as, as little equity as possible so that if your property holding entity gets sued, uh, there isn't much there to take because the bank has a lien on it for their mortgage. If you buy a million dollar property and you owe 900,000 on it, you've only got 100,000 in equity. That means if somebody sues you, sues your business and gets a half million dollar judgment against it, uh, they can only collect that 100,000 in equity. You're only out that much. It folds. You sell the property and walk away. The bank gets paid. They get their 100 grand and you're only out the equity that you had. That is very common. In fact, it's so common that in institutional investing, where uh, pension funds, hedge funds, things like that own commercial properties, they routinely equity strip their properties, shifting that equity to other investments that are not at risk with their single property entities. There are all kinds of complicated arrangements that are done uh, on those kinds of deals to make sure that real estate portfolios are relatively protected from potential creditors. Um, so it's important to talk to your asset professional advisors yeah, about asset protection like that. Because if you have a whole bunch of equity in your commercial property, that equity is at risk. And I'm saying this and my property is not equity stripped. So <laughs> just because you can do it doesn't mean you're always going to do it. Um, but it is, it's an idea worth that's out considering. there and it's worth considering in detail. That's it. Wow. I've that's never it. heard of that. Uh, <laughs> I know we're, we're uh, in an adult level, like <laughs> 400 conversation here. Like this is all super complicated. Uh -huh. um, so I think the last thing we wanted to really touch on is like maintaining your building. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Talk to us about maintenance, Charlotte. What have you run into as you get into this place? So we went into it knowing that we needed a new roof. It was probably original to the 1984 building. Nice. Um, we also knew that we needed one, if not two, new air conditioners. And so we did that immediately, and that was $25,000. Yeah. That's not even pretty stuff. Like, that's not even, like, flooring and paint and, like, oh, fluff. No, that's, like, essential. So, yeah. So, maintenance, I haven't gotten to the point of regular maintenance because we're getting to the point of making it not livable, but workable, I guess, you know, you can work from there. So you spend a fortune. Absolutely. We're in the middle of that. Not only can you spend a fortune, you, do. you are obligated to spend <laughs> a fortune in order to keep your building in occupiable condition. Yeah, it never stops. I've got an old roof. I've been avoiding replacing it. Um, we replaced the part over our office, but not the rest of the building. We just recoded it. It's a, a thin foam roof. Um, but it's worn out. You know, I got a five-year warranty on the elastomeric coating and that's up and it's leaks in like 10 spots. So mm -hmm. I've just been dealing with it. But yeah, it's going to be about 18000 to replace that. And then uh, most of the building's not air conditioned. This, the whole rest of it that's not our office is unair conditioned. So I keep thinking about putting AC in there to make it more comfortable to work, but it's a $35,000 project. Put uh, a swamp cooler on. Swamp coolers are awesome. I, I did, actually. I, I went ahead and, and dropped mm -hmm. one in, but it's just not quite Sufficient. good enough. Yeah. It's still hot <laughs> at 115. So oh, I, we're going to wrap it up here since we're almost out of time. So, Charlotte, why don't you tell everybody how they can contact you and, again, what you do. And thanks again for being on our podcast. Sure. Um, so again, it's Charlotte Burr and I own AZ Insurance Team. You can go on our website, which is AZ, like Arizona, insuranceteam.com. And that has all of our contact info. And um, yeah, we can help with uh, residential, commercial, real estate, uh, auto insurance, home insurance, life insurance. And if you need help with health insurance, contact me and I'll refer you to someone who I know knows what they're doing. 
Yeah. Excellent. That's a complicated field. <laughs> and I'm Mike Poulton with the law firm Poulton and Arroyan. You can find us online at www.pnlaw.pro or call us at 602-427-5613. Yes. And I'm Rochelle Poulton. And today's show was brought to you by XFIRM, helping people with financial transaction planning. You can find us online at xfirmlaw.com or call us at 480-305-0603. And on today's show, we definitely covered a lot. Remember, financial fraud schemes, if you get the heebie-jeebies, call a lawyer. And uh, there's a whole lot more that happened on this show. So we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening and watching. 